In the scripture, let me ask you, please, um, to pray with me. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word. Um, I trust that our gratefulness is expressed in our attentiveness to it. Um, It would be incongruous for us to say that we're grateful and then not listen to it. And so I pray now that you'll work in us, Holy Spirit, and enable us uh, to listen and to understand and to love this word and to live it. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would with me, turn to the book of Titus in the New Testament and chapter 3. Titus, please, chapter 3. I want to read the first uh, eight verses. These are familiar to us. We've been reading them for a bit and now we're going to catch up with them at least some. Titus in chapter 3, please. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, and to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote devote themselves to good works. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So last October we began uh, considering uh, this little letter uh, from the Apostle Paul to Titus. They knew each other well, as we said. Paul refers to Titus as his son. That is his son in this common faith. You get the sense that Paul led Titus to the Lord and then took him and mentored him and uh, and groomed him, if you will, uh, to be a pastor. They were very uh, close in relationship. Um, this letter was written towards the end of Paul's work and life. Um, he had been imprisoned in Rome. Uh, he was then set free and began to travel, no doubt with Titus here. They came to the island of Crete. Whether there were believers there already, we don't know. Although we know on the day of Pentecost, there were some there when uh, the Holy Spirit was poured out all the way back. We read about in Acts chapter 2 that there were some there from Crete. So perhaps they went home and, and, and spread the faith. Whatever, there are Christians there now, as, as Paul writes to Titus. Because Paul had left Titus there to kind of finish up um, organizing the church. And so it doesn't surprise us that when we read through chapter one, we find one of the first acts that Paul has Titus do is appoint elders, uh, so that they can oversee the life and ministry of the church. That was Paul's, um, uh, MO, if you will, when churches were planted, that he, he appointed elders in those churches. And thus we continue to do that today. That's the whole sense of, of the word Presbyterian. It, it's, uh, this a church governed by elders, if you will. So that's the sense of it. So Paul was being very Presbyterian here and having Titus appoint elders. But then we get to chapter 2. 
And it's this opening expression in chapter 2 uh, where Paul says to, to Titus, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so, so Paul had taught Titus that which is true, this sound doctrine. And Titus and Paul no doubt taught it to the Christians, the people there in Crete. And now he's saying there's something that accords with that, that goes along with that, that strikes the same chord as this sound doctrine. And then he goes on to talk to older men and younger men and older women and younger women, even Titus himself and bond servants, bond slaves, on how they were to live. In other words, how they were to behave. And there's a certain behavior, if you will, that accords with this truth. Paul introduced that in chapter 1, even as he introduced himself. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul's introducing himself, and he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So he said, here's this truth, and you need to understand there's something that goes along with it. There's something that follows it. The truth first, this is what is true, this is What God has done, this is who you are. Now, there's something that accords with that. It's godliness. Godliness without truth isn't godliness. (laughs) But truth without godliness means we didn't get the truth. And so it accords. That's why we teach classes, for instance, on our Sunday school curriculum to kids and adults. We teach classes all the time, both about that, that have a real doctrinal emphasis but then also those that, that strike that same chord, how we're to live given that sound doctrine, right? So that's what Paul is saying for Titus to do. And so he lays out how older men, older women, younger men, younger women, Titus and other servants are to live, living consistent with, whether it strikes the same chord, live accord, according to this sound doctrine. The sound doctrine, Paul waits to introduce until verse 11 in chapter 2. So he gives how they're to live. And then he opens, as we know, verse 11 in chapter 2 with the word for. You're to live this way for. You're to live this way because this accords with sound doctrine. Because this is the sound doctrine. And and we we, we spent our whole Advent season uh, talking about these particular verses in chapter 2, 11 through 14 particularly. Because the sound doctrine that... That, 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 that Titus was to teach them was simply what's echoed in our Advent response that Christ has come and Christ is coming again. Uh, that sense that he came, he appeared. And when he appeared, he brought salvation to all people. And that appearing and bringing of salvation meant that he redeemed us. That he bought us back, if you will. That we were enslaved to sin, enslaved to its penalty, eternal death, and its power to enslave us, to continue us in this life of sin. But when Christ came, he redeemed us. It means he, he bought us back. He bought our freedom from the penalty of sin and its power so that we could not live. We could be free to live. We would be free from the enslavement to sin so that we could actually live in a way that was pleasing to God. And as he puts it, zealous for good works, zealous to do that which is 
good, that which is pleasing to the Lord. And you see, that's the life that we're really meant to live. That's the life that's really satisfying. Apart from that, it's just misery, really. We might not know that, but it really is misery, ultimately. And so he's freed us, you see. That's the redemption that came in the Lord Jesus. Now, of course, living between the two advents, the first coming when he brought salvation and redeemed, and the second coming when he brings all that to to fruition, if you will, living in between, living right now, we know the struggle that still exists. We know that we're to be zealous to do that which is good, zealous to be pleasing to the Lord, and we know we can be zealous for that because we've been freed, but yet we still struggle, sin still resides. And so we we live, uh, as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, taking off the old and putting on the new. It's the sense of our life. Or as he writes more dramatically, I think, to the church in Colossae, we're to seek those things which are above and we are to mortify the flesh. We are to put to death those things that are of our natural or earthly nature. So, so that's the sense. We, we know that. That's where we live, right? Temptations come and we fight them. Sometimes they win. Sometimes uh, uh, we're able to overcome. But that's the sense of the life in which we live. But we're on this trajectory of being zealous for good works. So we live in this cycle. And the cycle, at least as I understand it in my own life, goes something like this. That I know the truth of God. I know how it is. I, I know who I am in him. And I know how it is I'm to live. And then I look at my life. And where I see that I've lived consistent with who Christ has made me to be, I give thanks. And when I see areas where I haven't, then I make confession. And I repent. And I pray that God will help me. And then I go out again to live. And then I'm confronted again with the truth. And then I look at my own life. And then I see areas where perhaps I've lived consistent with this calling uh, to be zealous for good and to be zealous for good works. And, and I give thanks. And then I see where I haven't. And then I make confession and I repent and I pray. And then I go after it again. I mean, that's, that's just sort of the natural, even maturation process in any, in any field, for in, athlete, in athletics, right? The coach tells the players how they're to play. They go out and play. They give thanks when they do it right. He chastises them when they do it wrong. And they confess and repent. And uh, some of them pray, I'm sure. And then they go after it again. But that same thing. And in, in, in academics, we do the same kind of thing. The professor teaches. And we're to learn that. And there's a test. And then, and then we see where we got it right. And we get things. And we see where we got it wrong. And uh, in relationships, uh, in business, there's this sense. And, and so that's the sense that's, that continues on in the course of our lives. Now, one of the things that helps us in the midst of this, obviously, is God's enabling grace. And his enabling grace comes to us in part by way of his word to us. As Paul writes to them, by way of these reminders. Verse 1 in chapter 3 of Titus, he says, remind them. So Paul had obviously told them these things before. There's nothing new here. But remind them of something. And these reminders, as we read through the scripture, uh, none of us ever gets too mature for these reminders. We, we need these reminders. They're necessary for us. And could I say this? Could I say it's necessary for us 
to hear these reminders, to receive these reminders together. Oh, it's helpful individually. We should meditate on these things all the time and know them. But there's something about hearing them together because we're to live life together. And it's good for us to hear these things together for a couple of reasons, I think. Number one is that we need to know that we're not alone in these things. That we're not the only ones called to live this life. That they were called to live it together. That, that I'm not alone in this. That I'm not the only one who needs to be submissive to rulers and authorities. I'm the only one who needs to be obedient and ready for every good work. I'm the only one who's, who's, who's told to, to speak evil of no one or to avoid quarreling. That this is, this is the life we're all to live, you see. I'm not alone in this. But secondly, this. I think it's helpful to strengthen our obedience, to hear it together. Because you see, when we hear it together, I know that you know, that I know, that you know how I'm supposed to live. See, if I read this stuff alone, I might think, nobody knows that I'm supposed to live like this. But when we hear it together, we can't help but go, oh yeah, this really is true. Now, I must confess that the providential irony of this passage isn't lost on me today. After Friday, when the apostle says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. In fact, if I were smarter, I would be done with Titus already, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't be taking this up the Sunday after the inauguration. I just, I just wouldn't, uh, you know, I'm, I wouldn't put myself through that. And, uh, but, but it just happened here. We, I was gone for a couple of weeks. They said, where am I in Titus? Oh yeah. Chapter three. Oh, all right, here we go. Uh, now it was wonderful when I woke up the Sunday before Advent and realized I could preach 11 through 14 of chapter two and it would be perfectly for Advent. But, but this one is not lost on me. And so this whole week, as I've talked about the inauguration, this passage has influenced me tremendously on what I've thought and said. In fact, sometimes when I've been talking to people about the inauguration, if they bring this up, I would say, you know what I'm preaching on Sunday? I just mentioned it so that nobody be embarrassed today. You know what I mean? After all our discussions. If if I had just read it by myself and, 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 and didn't know that anybody else knew that I had read this, I don't know that it would affect me the same way. But because I knew I was preaching it today in front of all of you, it influenced everything about how I approached the inauguration and how I talked about it. And I even warned various ones of you as we talked about these things that I was going to be so, so you would be influenced by it uh, as well. You see, there's something about hearing this together and then living our lives together. And that's true for any passage that we come across. If it's a passage about forgiveness, it's good to hear that together so that you know that I know that you know that I know that I'm to forgive you and you're to forgive me. And so when something happens, we can't pretend like we don't know that. Because we all heard it from God together. When I realize that when we hear together that we're not to slander one another or speak ill against one another, then I know that you know that I know that you know that I'm not to do that. And so when I do, it's obvious, you see. And so the necessity of the people of God 
coming together. We, we read about it throughout Scripture, about the necessity of gathering to hear these reminders. Remember when we went through Nehemiah, and they, the people gathered together because that was the word of the Lord that on these various times you're to gather together and hear the word read and they would hear the word read all morning long and what would, it would arise in them weeping and confession because they would realize their own lives, you see. And so, so that's the sense of it. So it's good for us, I think. It's good for me uh, to know that you know that I know that you know that I know how I'm supposed to live. And uh, I trust it's good for you um, it's good for you as well. So why did Paul want to remind them? Well, first he wanted to remind them because he'd already told them these things. This is nothing new for Paul to talk about how to interact with and how we're to live as individual Christians uh, towards uh, ruling authorities, towards the state, towards government, if you will, those in authority over us in, in various ways. And so he had spoken to them. Uh, we, we know a bit about the Cretans, and we get the impression both here and just from uh, history that, that they weren't the most submissive people in the world, that they were a bit of a rebellious people. And so this may have been something that needed to be worked on them particularly. And so Paul would remind them. But, but this notion of submissiveness is to be characteristic of Christians, period. So when we read in the scripture, whatever context, that we're to be submissive, whether it's a particular person, a particular group of people, or, or all of us, to be submissive to another, that, that shouldn't rub against us, you see. In fact, submissiveness is, is part of the evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Um, Turn to Ephesians and chapter 5. Ephesians and chapter 5, um, verse uh, 15. The apostle writes, Look carefully, uh, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, So the main verb there is being filled with the Spirit. And then all that kind of comes with that is that we're to address one another in a particular way, we're to sing together, we're to give thanks, and we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now this word submit means exactly what it means, right? You know what it means. Uh, you want some fancy definition. Uh, it's just, it means literally that we're to arrange ourselves under another. It's a military term. We're to arrange ourselves under another. Not because we're inferior. Because you see, even in the context of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is a sense of submission. That the Son submits to the Father. He's of equal value, equal worth. He's God. But yet, he willingly, voluntarily, places himself under the Father And does the Father's bidding. He is sent. And the Holy Spirit 
submits to the Father and Son. Equal, of equal value and worth to be worshipped, but still is sent by the Father and Son to do the bidding of the Father and the Son, to glorify Jesus. So, so you get that sense of, 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 of submission is that which is godly, that which is good. And we're created in his image. And so there's a sense in which though we're all equal, that it isn't at all uh, a rub against us to say, submit to the other. One way to put it, of course, is, is, is how it's put in Philippians in chapter 2, where we read, uh, it's going to be true of Jesus, but true for us, uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's the sense of, of submitting, right? Just count them, consider them. When you look at them, don't say, I'm better than you. That shouldn't be our first response. But our first response is, how can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I love you, right? That's the sense of it. Not that I'm too good for this. I mean, we see it in Jesus. We see it as he washes the feet of his disciples. There's a sense of, of, of seeing their interests as better than his own, even the interest of having clean feet. And so he washes their feet. We see it at the cross, most especially as he comes not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's this sense of submission. Not that you're inferior but that you're willing to serve, you're willing to love another. And so, so this sense of submission isn't an unusual thing for Christians. It's, it's part of the work of the Spirit in us to take away our, our self-centeredness and our arrogance and, and viewing ourselves as better than everyone else and saying, all right, I'll submit to you. And so Paul says, here's, you're to submit to those rulers and authorities. And, and the reason he says that isn't, is because he realizes that these rulers and authorities and this government has been instituted by God. He, he explains it in more detail in Romans in chapter 13 and verses 1 through 7. Let me read them and just listen or you can turn to them quickly. He writes here, Let every person be subject, same notion, same word, be in submission to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So then he goes on and says, pay your taxes <laughs> uh, and uh, respect. Give respect to whom respect is owed and honored to whom honored is owed. Peter would write of this as well. Paul wrote of that a few years before he wrote to Titus. And Peter would write uh, about that time or a bit 
later than the letter to Titus. But in 1 Peter and chapter 2, verse 13, we read similar kinds of words. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people, that his people are free, uh, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brothers, fear God, honor the emperor. And so there's that sense, you see, of, 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 of this consistent submission to government. Now, Paul wasn't naive when he wrote this. He didn't write this because he said all rulers and authorities are good. He didn't write this because he said all rulers and authorities will treat you well. He wrote this because he said God has a purpose for rulers and authorities, a purpose for which they'll be held accountable. They're to restrain evil and to praise or promote, as Peter says it, that which is good. And so live good. Live good and you're free. Now, now it, Paul knew that they were evil rulers. He knew it in his own history that there were evil kings in Israel. He knew that there were evil kings against Israel. He knew that Herod the Great had killed young boys after Jesus had been born. He knew that another Herod had beheaded John the Baptist. He knew Pilate had ordered the execution of Jesus. He knew the brutality of Rome. Even in his own life, he had been subject to evil rulers and authorities. Nero was on the rise and he would, as tradition tells us, know him intimately well as perhaps with Peter. So he wasn't naive about that. He, he knew all of that. And nor was he implying at all, because he never did, that the submission is absolute. He knew that submission, real submission, is, is absolute only to God. He, he would know the story of the midwives in, 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 in Egypt during the days of Moses when they were commanded to kill the baby boys that were born and they refused to out of the fear of God. He would know about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who, 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 who refused to bow down to the golden image. He would know about Daniel who, when told not to pray, opened his windows and prayed and thus uh, met some lions. Uh, he would know, of course, of, of the early Christians, Peter and others, who were commanded never to speak or preach or teach in the name of Jesus, who said, no, I'm sorry, but we must obey God rather than men. He understood all of that. So we take this in the context of that. This isn't an absolute submission ever. It isn't a, an endorsement of all that is evil in the world of government and with rulers and authorities. It isn't that at all. It's, he's just simply saying as believers, listen, you belong to the kingdom of heaven. Now reflect that in your lives and do that which is good. And you do that which is good and you submit to these rulers, uh, not because you're trusting them, but because you're trusting God. 
Even Peter says you submit for the Lord's sake on account of the Lord. You don't want the Lord to look bad in this. You don't want to be known as simply a rebellious people. And Peter says, listen, you've been set free. Don't use your freedom for evil. Don't use your freedom to say, I don't have to care about this world. Don't, don't use your freedom to say, I, I, don't, I, can only, I only now need to, to pursue my own interests and to vote for that which is good for me. But, but I'm free of all that. I'm free to be able to consider others. I'm free to be able to submit. I'm free to be able to say, what's good for the whole? I'm free to be able to say, what's really helpful here? Uh, I'm not worried about me. I'm, I, I can be worried about you. I, I, can, I, can, I can think about your interests now. My interests will be taken care of. I'll be good. I don't need to worry about that. So this sense of, of then being able, you see, to submit for the Lord's sake. So that we do that which good so that our accusers are ultimately shamed. They're ultimately silenced. Because we've done that which is good. So Paul goes on with Titus to, to then lay out uh, what he's speaking of here, what he means by being submissive. He says, be obedient. Be obedient to the laws of the land. Don't do anything, of course, that really violates that which God has commanded. Or Don't do anything that he said don't do. But Paul would say, by and large, you can still live here. You can still obey. You'll just even in the context in which he lived, he still obey. Be ready for every good work. This is, God has established this, these rulers and authorities to praise, to commend, to promote that which is good. And so when good is happening, be involved in that. Promote that good. Uh, how does Jeremiah put it? Pray for the welfare of the city. Promote the welfare of the city. You live here. And he says, so when good things are happening, you should be ready to participate in in every good that's taking place in the world in which we live. So so, so embrace that that good. Um, Speak evil of no one. That doesn't mean that we have to call evil good. That doesn't mean when there's evil happening, we have to ignore it or condone it. That's not the point of all. But don't slander anyone. Don't malign people. Don't speak ill of them simply to speak ill of them to make them look bad. Make sure that you're right about what you're thinking. Make sure you're right about what you're saying. Don't slander these people. You don't have to say that something is, that is evil is good. You can call it out. And in our context, of course, in the world in which we live, then we have the right, even the obligation to call that out, perhaps. But he says, don't speak evil. Of anyone. Avoid quarreling. That is, don't be argumentative. See, sometimes we can be so argumentative about rulers and authorities that people would think that that is our hope. That if this doesn't get right, then we're lost. That, that, that things will be go awry, that, 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 we have, that we're placing our hope in this. And it's so important that we have to continue to argue and to continue to fight and to continue to fume over these things. And, and yes, there's a, a time to debate and discuss and all of that, but we mustn't ever do it giving the impression that we think that unless these rulers and authority are on our side or right, that we're lost because we're not. Because it's God who rules and reigns. Over all things. This is our Father's world, we say. 
And we don't need to fret. And we don't need to be troubled. Who was it? Tertullian in the second century said, the seed of the martyr, I'm sorry, the blood of the martyr is the seed of the church. And so the church will flourish even in bad times. We don't need a favorable government. We don't need to fear an unfavorable one. God is sovereign. He rules and reigns. He protects his people. His church is his and it will flourish. We have to be careful. We can discuss. We needn't be quarrelsome and argumentative and give the impression that that, these rulers and authorities, are our hope. We need to be gentle. Um, better if I could just say, perhaps it would be better to say patient or forbearing. We can be patient. That is, that is don't, don't, don't panic. Don't ever panic about rulers and authorities. Now, they can do great evil. And, and again, Paul was a naive here. He was imprisoned. He was beaten. Uh, uh, he was left for dead. All those things by various kinds of rulers and authorities, whether they be uh, in, in the synagogue or, or in government. And so he wasn't naive here. Uh, he, he understood. But, he, but his word is, be patient. God will work this out. Be patient. God is at work even in the midst of this. Be patient even in the midst of these dire circumstances. Uh, missionary books and, and others that you've heard in, in, in countries where people are, are persecuted. I'm always amazed at the sense of calm that they have as they talk about things that for us scare us to death. Well, they just talk about them as a matter of fact. Oh, yes, the authorities came and oh, yes, they took my husband and oh, yes, they put him in prison. And you don't feel the panic because they're they're patient, they're forbearing. How can they be that way? They can be that way because they're trusting God. They know that God is at work. And then he says, show perfect courtesy toward all people. We could translate this as well in a probably more familiar way. That is simply practice meekness. Practice meekness, not weakness, but meekness. Meekness means that you've been humbled appropriately because you know who you are. You know, in the first hand, you're a creature utterly dependent upon your creator. We'll be humble throughout all of eternity. We'll be more humble in glory than we are today because we know our creatureliness. We know that everything that we have in need is dependent upon God. And so that's, that's a sense of humility. I, I can't make it happen. I can't keep me alive. Only God can do that, right? So humble. But we're also even more humbled because of our sin. We realize our sinfulness and, and we realize that we're no better than anyone else, even the rulers, even the evil rulers and authorities over us, if they would be evil. And so we, uh, we know that. And so we can, then live that out, this humility out before people, meekly, not arrogantly. That's why the next word in after, chapter, after verse 2, the opening word of verse 3, is the most important here. It's the word for. 
or because. You ask the question, why should I, why can I, why should I live out this way? Why should I be submissive? Uh, why should I uh, uh, not slander, not speak evil? Why, why should I uh, not be argumentative? Why should I be courteous and meek? For we ourselves were once foolish. Not to Paul's implying that our rulers and authorities are foolish. But we were once foolish. If we were rulers and authorities before a work of Christ in us, we would be foolish. We would go and govern by our own wisdom. That's what foolishness is. Foolishness is trusting that you're God. Foolishness is trusting that you're able and you're wise enough to make all of this work. And he says, we were once foolish. We once thought that we were all that. We once thought that we were, we were, we were wise enough to rule and to govern others. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We went our own, our own way. Uh, we were led astray. Uh, we were slaves to our passions and pleasures. If, if we were rulers and authorities before a work of Christ in us, we, we would follow our own ways, our own passions, our own selfishness. We would be, we could very well be the worst of the worst. Rulers and authorities. And we pass our days in malice and envy, desiring what others have because they have it, wanting it for ourselves, and, and thus being angry with them and hating them, and others looking at us, wanting what we have and hating it. That's the sense of, of the world in which we live. And is Paul overstating it? It sounds like it, but he's really not. It sounds like it because we think ourselves better than this, but this is really the way it is for us. He's hated by others and hating one another. But... Second biggest word here. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. The washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He gave us a new life. He gave us new insight. He gave us a new direction. A new inclination within us. Taking out the old, putting in the new. And that was a complete work of God, not a work of ours. And we poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul's saying, you can be humble, meek, submissive, honoring to others in the midst of the world in which we live. And if you're not, don't you wonder, don't you begin to wonder to think, why do I think I'm all that? And he says, oh, by the way, you're not. You're no better. Now, do you remember the promise of Jesus for the meek? The meek will inherit the earth. The sense in which we needn't fret. Because this will all be ours. Let me close with Psalm 37. Worst case scenario. Making no implication about our present day. I'll let you think about that. Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, 
Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. That's our calling. That's our calling. Whether we live in the United States of America in 2017, whether you lived in Soviet Russia in 1947, whether you lived in Nazi Germany in 1938, whether you lived in the days of the Apostle or the days of the Psalmist. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Who should your friends be in the world in which we live? Faithfulness. Uh, We should befriend faith. We should be faithful to all that God calls us to. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Not the rulers and authorities. He might give you the desires of your heart through the rulers and authorities. And that would be wonderful. But he might not. So if he doesn't, he still will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as light and your justice as the noonday. Even if they're evil, you can still trust him. A day will come when people will be silenced and shamed because God will show you to be his. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. And forsake wrath, fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us and for me, for us, all of us, uh, that you would be gracious to us. We pray that your name would be honored, that your kingdom would come, that you would have your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, that even in the days in which we live, that we would trust you, that we would Know that the coming of your kingdom is not dependent upon those who sit on earthly thrones or in oval offices or legislative halls, but those who sit upon the throne, the one who sits upon the throne in heaven. Our trust, God, is in you. So we pray for those who who rule us. We pray that you would uh, cause those who rule over us to rule in righteousness and justice, that you would grant them wisdom and that their wisdom would work to restrain evil and to promote that which is good, that you would overrule all that would bring evil and inhibit good. And we pray that by their rule, as we as your people would lead peaceful and quiet lives, that we would live godly and holy lives, and that our lives would testify of your goodness and mercy through Jesus Christ our Lord, that many would come to salvation through the knowledge of the truth. Forgive us for giving any impression that we're desperate, that we can't be satisfied with all that you are for us in Jesus. And may we hope and have the hope in Christ that is evident to all. And may it elicit inquiries from from many as to why we hope and that we can express that our hope is in you. Father, on this day, many need hope. Some, even among those who believe we're in, need renewed hope. In the midst of sickness and disease, Father, we pray that you would grant hope to those who trust in you. Uh, Bless 
Our dear Mecky, Santia, she recovers from her surgery. Keep her from pain, heal her. There are those in the midst of grief today. We pray for Dustin Mortensen on the death of his mom. Those in the midst of financial need, in the midst of, who live in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of discouragement, or in the midst of broken trust and brokenness, in the midst of their own sin or the sins of others against them. Father, bring hope through a witness of your spirit, that they belong to you, that you care for them, that you will never leave them or forsake them. Father, for us as a church that we would give clear witness of Christ, that we would stand together for the gospel and that all would know that our hope is in you. And this we pray in Jesus' name.